0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2 for our time of study in God's Word this morning. Revelation chapter 2, we're doing a verse by verse study through the book of Revelation. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. And the title of the message is Challenging a Compromised Church. Challenging a Compromised Church. You know, in the last couple months, I think it has been, we have been treated to disturbing news headlines regarding the scandalous behavior of a university president and his wife And we have also been treated to reports about an influential thinker who recently passed away learning about his troubling history of morally repugnant behavior when he was alive. The double tragedy is that these individuals are not Christ-denying atheists. One of them led the world's largest Christian university before he was removed a couple months ago. And the other one was one of the most persuasive Christian apologists of our lifetime until his death in May of this year. They both bore the name of Christ, yet engaged in sins that are most unbecoming of Christians, engaging in behaviors that were tolerated by Christians around them who did not call them out for their deeds. As sad as this is, this is not a new phenomenon. It was actually happening in the first century church, and we will actually see it happening in the church of Pergamum in our passage today, as we're going to observe that some of the members of this church were eating. At idolatrous banquets, at pagan temples, and committing acts of immorality all the while claiming the name of Christ. And members of the church were doing this, and no one in the church was doing anything about it. We're going to see what Jesus thinks about these sins and what he thinks of the church's tolerance of these behaviors and how he chooses to address it. And in the process, we're going to learn, I think, a little bit about how we here at Cornerstone can avoid this happening here. Historians tell us that by the time the book of Revelation was written, Pergamum, as a city, had served as the capital of Asia Minor for about 200 years. And it was an impressive city that was worthy of this exalted position. One first century Roman writer described Pergamum as by far the most distinguished city of Asia Minor. At the time of John's writing of the book of Revelation, the city of Pergamum actually had about a 300-year-old library. A 300-year-old library of over 200,000 handwritten volumes. Imagine that during this day. The city of Pergamum boasted several pagan idolatrous temples and religious groves for worship. There were four temples built in this city in honor of Zeus and Athena, Dionysos, and also the god of healing, Beyond that, Pergamum was the first city in Asia to have a temple devoted to the worship of a specific Roman emperor. This temple was built in 29 B.C. in honor of Caesar Augustus, along with the goddess Roma. Speaking of Pergamum's worship of Caesar that mixed with their patriotism for the Roman Empire. Dr. Robert Thomas says this, compared to all the surrounding cities, Caesar worship was the most intense here. In other cities, a Christian might be in danger on only one day a year when a pinch of incense had to be burned in worship of the emperor. In Pergamum, however, Christians were in danger every day of the year for the same reason. Pergamum was a place of such influential evil that in the coming verses, Jesus himself will describe this city as the place where Satan dwells. This is the place where Satan lives. And he describes this city as the place where Satan's throne is. How would you like to live in that city? Yet amazingly, in this idolatrous city of such great evil and control by Satan and worship of the Roman emperor, we find a church, a church that was faithful on some meaningful levels, but also a church that had become tolerant of evil in its midst. And it is this church that Jesus wishes to speak to next. Let me read the passage to you, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says to the apostle John and to the angel or the pastor of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness." my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he Who receives it. This is the Word of God and may God help us to understand His Word this morning. The way we're going to break down our passage, and you'll see this on the same document that you have the worship lyrics on, we'll observe six acts of Jesus designed to help a faithful but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Six acts of Jesus designed to help a faithful yet a sinfully tolerant church to overcome. And the first act of Jesus that we observe here is, number one, he presents himself to them as the one with the two-edged sword. He presents himself to them as the one with the two-edged sword. Listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. Literally, Jesus is saying this. The one who has the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one, says this. This is the sword that John saw coming out of Jesus' mouth in chapter 1 when he beheld the glorified Christ And even later in this very letter in verse 16, Jesus is going to describe this sword as the sword of my mouth. The word that is translated sharp here can either mean sharp in the sense of having a keen cutting edge or it can mean swift or quick. And certainly both of these ideas are true about the sword that Jesus wields. He also describes this sword as two-edged. Literally, he's saying that the sword has two mouths, meaning that this sword can devour and consume in both directions. Now, think about it. Why, why does Jesus begin his letter in this way? Why does he want to, right out the gate, remind the Christians in Pergamum that he is the one with the sharp, two-edged sword? Well, because I think in the minds of the people of this city, it is the Roman government that bears the sword that can kill. We're going to learn in just a moment that the government has already wielded its sword in killing one of the church members of the church of Pergamum. So Jesus here wants to remind the members of this church that it is He who bears the real sword, the two-edged one. The sharp one. And because he bears this sword, it is he who should be feared above all others as the ultimate ruler who has full executive powers given to him by the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus at his resurrection. And part of that authority is the right to carry this sword The sword Jesus bears can be used as an instrument of judgment on the wicked. We're going to see it used this way in Revelation chapter 19 at his second coming. But it is also a sword that Jesus uses to make war against those who corrupt his church. And we're going to see that in verse 16, how Jesus plans on doing this. Jesus has full authorization from the Father to bear this sword And therefore, he must be listened to, which is why he says at the end of verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, and we all ought to sit up and be prepared to listen to what Jesus says. After all, he is the one who carries the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one, and he deserves our attention This leads us to the second act of Jesus designed to motivate a faithful but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number two, he tells them that he knows of their faithfulness in the evil place they dwell. He tells them that he knows of their faithfulness in the evil place they dwell. Listen to what he says to the church of Pergamum in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus is saying, I I know where you live. I know your environment. I know the unique influences that prevail in, in your city that make it challenging for you to remain faithful to me. As we've already seen, Pergamum was an exceptionally idolatrous city of fierce patriotic loyalty to Rome that made it an especially challenging city for a Christian to live in and remain faithful. And Jesus is saying, I get it. I know where you live. And describing Pergamum as the place where Satan's throne is, Jesus is speaking of Pergamum as the place where Satan seemed to especially have a stranglehold on the people. And the place where... He established his rule and exerted his evil dominion over all of Asia Minor. Pergamum was Satan's capital city in the region of Asia Minor. And yet, listen to what Jesus is saying to these Christians. He's setting up a compliment here. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. It's not lost on him. He appreciates their faithfulness all the more given their evil environment. As evil as this city is, with all of its Caesar worship and idolatry and immorality, as influential as the evil of this city was over all of the rest of Asia Minor, these Christians were swimming against the grain of their culture and holding fast to the name of Christ in their lives, and in their prayers, and in their witness to others. One might have thought that no Christians could survive in this capital city of Satan's domain, yet here are these Christians holding fast to the name of Christ, and Jesus sees this, he knows this, and he appreciates it, and he's telling them what he sees. What makes their faithfulness all the more remarkable is what they have been through already. They're not merely remaining faithful in the face of present evil influences, but they have already endured some tough days in their past when they remain faithful in the face of severe persecution. Looking back on what they've already endured, Jesus says in verse 13, And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells." The expression, my faith, literally reads, the faith of me, which speaks of the faith of Christ, the the faith that is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, you did not deny the Christian faith even in the days of Antipas, who was killed among you. Evidently, there was a time when great pressure was put on these Christians to deny the faith, but they refused in the face of this persecution to renounce Christ. They refused even when one of their own church members named Antipas was arrested and killed for his faith. Jesus describes Antipas as being killed among you, probably meaning that his death occurred in full view of them. These members saw, they witnessed his death. Some commentators suggest that Antipas was killed by mob violence, and that is possible. Others suggest that he probably died by means of capital punishment, and I think that's very likely Ancient church tradition tells us that Antipas was placed inside of a hollow statue of a brass bull and roasted to death inside of that bull. And this happened among the Christians who no doubt witnessed this. However he died, Antipas had the opportunity to renounce Christ, but he did not renounce Christ. In fact, in his life and in his death, he gave faithful witness about Jesus Christ. And Jesus very affectionately describes Antipas as my witness, my faithful one. We would all want to have Jesus speak this way about us, right? Right? I love the way Jesus affectionately refers to Antipas here. He appreciates faithfulness in his people and he raves about his faithful ones as he does his faithful witness, Antipas, here. So we should never say, man, you know, I just can't be faithful. I mean, our world is so evil today. The state we live in, uh, there's just so much evil. I can't be faithful. No, these Christians were. And see it this way, because things are so evil around me, if by the power of Christ I can be faithful to Him and hold fast to Him, Jesus will especially appreciate that. As He appreciates the faithfulness of the Christians in Pergamum in this city where Satan's throne is. Jesus is paying a tremendous compliment to these Christians in Pergamum Antipas remained faithful unto death and did not deny Christ. The Christians in Pergamum did not waver in their faith, even in the face of the death of Antipas. And they all would have seen his death and known thereafter that the same thing that's happened to him could happen to me. And yet they still did not release their hold on Christ. They remained faithful to him. Imagine seeing one of our church members arrested and then roasted to death for being a witness for Christ. Would you remain faithful to Christ if you witnessed that and knew that that might happen to you as well? In saying that Antipas was killed among you where Satan dwells, Jesus is saying that Antipas was killed in, of all places, the city of Pergamum which is the place where he earlier described Satan's throne as being. These Christians dwelt in the city where Satan had made his special home, and they have felt the hot blast of Satan's fury against them, and yet wonderfully, they were remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. And yet, not all is well with them. And Jesus, who sees everything, the good and the bad, and we're all a mixed bag, right? Wants to address what is wrong that he sees in them. And he does this because he loves them. And this brings us to the third act of Jesus designed to motivate his faithful but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number three, he confronts them for having embracers of false teaching in their midst. He confronts them for having embracers or holders of false teaching in their midst. Listen to what he says to them in verse 14. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So there were some in the church holding to the teaching of Balaam, and they were living accordingly. Balaam is the one who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. And these Christians in the church of Pergamum, were eating things, living inside of this teaching. They were eating things sacrificed to idols, and these members of the church of Pergamum were committing acts of immorality. Jesus here is not faulting them as a church for having the doctrines of Balaam in their church doctrinal statement. He is faulting them for the fact that they have some in their midst who hold to the teaching of Balaam and that they as a church are doing nothing about these few or these some who hold to this heretical teaching. They are not confronting those who hold to this teaching, nor are they exercising church discipline on these individuals. They're not excommunicating them from the church upon their refusal to repent. And so, guys, here's the picture. It turns out that While this church in Pergamum was standing so strong against the external attacks of the devil, the devil was attacking them from within, and they weren't doing so well against this internal attack because there were some in their midst who were holding to the teaching of Balaam and no doubt seeking to influence others and being a terrible example to others. Now, if you wonder what Jesus means when he speaks of the teaching of Balaam, he explains what he means, but maybe a little bit of context would be helpful. Balaam is an Old Testament prophet of Israel whose story is told in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. The king of Moab was a man named Balak. And Balak felt threatened by the growing strength of the people of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. Balak knew that their blessing was coming from God, and he felt threatened by that. And so in order to diminish somehow the people of Israel, Balak hired a prophet of Israel named Balaam to speak a curse over Israel. Balaam tried to go along with it and to speak a curse over Israel. But every time he tried to speak this curse on a few occasions, every time he opened his mouth, a blessing came out of his mouth upon the people of Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, is furious with Balaam about this. And it seems like he never gets the help from Balaam. That he wants. But in the very next chapter, in Numbers 25, the text reads, beginning in verse 1 While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began, the people of Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. That's immorality. Engaging in sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab, for they. The daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people, in other words, the people of Israel bowed down to their gods. And so Israel joined themselves to Baal, the god Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. So at first glance, as you're reading through the story in Numbers, it seems that the author tells the story of Balaam and Balak. And Balak didn't get what he wanted from Balaam. And now we move into chapter 25. And and now the story is told about how the people of Israel became corrupted by the daughters of Moab. And we don't think there's a connection with Balaam. But we learn later in Numbers that this corruption had Balaam's fingerprints all over it. In fact, write this reference down, Numbers 31 verse 16. Numbers 31.16, Moses speaks about the women of Moab, which would involve the women of Midian. And he says in Numbers 31.16 that they caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. And guys, with even greater specificity, Jesus speaks about Balaam here in our text for today, Revelation 2.14, and says that Balaam kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. What we read in Numbers 31 and what we read here in Revelation 2.14 is an astounding revelation. You put the pieces together and you come to realize a really awful truth. King Balak did not succeed in getting Balaam to curse Israel. But it seems that afterwards, Balaam, who's a prophet of Israel, had several conversations with Balak and kept teaching him and saying something like this, hey, Balak, if you really want to diminish Israel, all you need to do is to get Israel involved in idolatry and immorality, and that will turn God against them and bring His judgment upon them. So, in response to Balaam's counsel, that's what Balak did. He sent the women among his people to the children of Israel to seduce the men of Israel, and these women served as a stumbling block to the men of Israel. And the men of Israel committed immorality with them and were seduced through their lust for immorality into the idolatrous worship of Baal. And as a result of the sins of the children of Israel in this very ugly, hideous episode, the wrath of the Lord burned against Israel and 24,000 Israelites were killed under the judgment of God. Ultimately, Balaam proved himself the enemy of God's people. And it turns out that there were enemies of the church in Pergamum who figured out that the best way to defeat these Christians was to enter their fellowship as if they were Christians and try to lure them into coming to the pagan idolatrous temples and to have meals there and commit immorality with the temple prostitutes while there. And perhaps they were even experiencing some success in winning some of the Christians in the church over to their way of thinking. That may seem hard for us to imagine this kind of thing being tolerated in the church. But going to the temple restaurants... And having sex with the temple prostitutes was completely accepted and expected behavior throughout the Roman Empire and even here in Pergamum. It's what the socialites of the city did. It was your way of supporting the local establishments and being a good citizen. Everyone did it to such a degree that it was considered normal. And so the Christians in the church of Pergamum are here tolerating some in their midst who think this is okay and are doing these things. And again, keep in mind that most members of this church are not holding to this kind of teaching or doing these kinds of things, but Jesus says there are some among them who hold to this teaching that is tantamount to the teaching of Balaam, and they're tolerating these people in the church. Philosophically, those who held to this teaching were people who had bought into the popular and convenient dualistic notion of the day that God is a spirit and therefore the physical doesn't matter to God. So God doesn't care about the physical. And because sex is just a body thing, a physical thing and God doesn't care about what you do with your body, then God doesn't care about you going to a temple and eating food sacrificed to idols at these pagan temple banquets and having sex with temple prostitutes. God doesn't care about what you're doing with your body in that way so long as your spirit is remaining dedicated to the Lord. This line of thinking sounded spiritual, I am sure, to some ears, but it's flat out wrong. And God tells us throughout the Bible that this is wrong, commanding us everywhere to abstain from immorality. Why would God command us everywhere in the Old and New Testament to abstain from immorality if what we do with our bodies does not matter to Him? By the way, the word for immorality speaks of any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. But some in the church of Pergamum were holding to a contrary teaching, which Jesus calls the teaching of Balaam, and Jesus is faulting the church at Pergamum for tolerating some in their membership who were holding this kind of teaching and doing this kind of thing. What we observe about Satan is that he could not succeed in getting this church, a pergamum, to deny Christ through persecution. He even killed one of their own, and they still remain steadfast. So what does he do? He attacks them from another way. He attacks them from within. He sends his emissaries into the church, masquerading as Christians. And they begin influencing the church toward compromise, telling Christians that, hey, you can be a Christian as I am. You can hold fast to the name of Christ and engage in these idolatrous banquets and engage in immorality at the same time. And it seems that this church is allowing these members to do what they're doing and to be saying what they're saying. In other words, the great sin of this church was the sin of tolerating sin among some of their members, tolerating false teaching among their members. On a related note, Jesus says in verse 15, so you also have some who, notice these words, in the same way, hold the teaching Of the Nicolaitans. This is another group of people, yet their behavior didn't end up looking a lot different from the first group. Back in Jesus' letter to the Ephesian church, he commended the Ephesians for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says he also hated. And here we see Jesus faulting the church of Pergamum for having some among them who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So, Jesus hated their deeds, and He hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know specifically what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was, but Jesus mentions them in connection with those who held to the teaching of Balaam that He's just described that results in participation in idolatry and sexual immorality. So, because of the linkage here, we would imagine that the teaching and behavior of the Nicolaitans was very much similar. In fact, less than 100 years removed from the book of Revelation, a Christian named Clement of Alexandria speaks about the followers of a man named Nicholas, which is where the name Nicolaitan may have come from, and he says of this group, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats. Goats leading a life of self-indulgence, and this is probably a very accurate description of the Nicolaitans that are being spoken about here in our passage today. Whatever their teaching was, it was false teaching, and it resulted in sexual immorality and participation at the pagan idolatrous feasts that were so common in this idolatrous city, and Jesus is faulting the church of Pergamum for allowing people in their membership to hold to this teaching and to be members of the church at the same time. Again, Jesus is not faulting the church of Pergamum for having Nicolaitan doctrine in their doctrinal statement. He's faulting them for the fact that they're tolerating some among them who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And rather than confronting them and practicing church discipline on them and excommunicating them from the church if they refused to repent, they were tolerating them in their midst. Perhaps they tolerated these Nicolaitans and others like them in the hopes of eventually winning them over. To their point of view, they may have thought, well, we're all on a journey, and maybe they'll, by hanging out with us and being accepted by us as Christians, maybe they'll grow and learn and stop doing these kinds of things. Perhaps these Christians in the church of Pergamum were just grateful enough that these people claimed the name of Christ, and said they were Christians. After all, Pergamum was such an evil city, they were probably grateful for anyone who said, no, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. Even though they had these false doctrines that they lived by. Whatever the motive was for tolerating these individuals, these Christians in the church of Pergamum are wrong to tolerate these people and to embrace them as members of the church in good standing, And if they continue to allow them to persist in their ways as members of the church, there is no doubt that their sin will begin to spread like leaven and eventually infect and corrupt the entire church. That's what always happens, given enough time. And that's a huge concern to Jesus. They might think as a church that we're doing okay because we're holding fast to the name of Christ. But their situation is more dire. It's more serious than they can begin to imagine. And they must take action now before more damage is done. This brings us to the fourth act of Jesus designed to motivate this faithful but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number four, He calls upon them to repent Before He makes war against their sinning members, He calls upon them to repent before He makes war against their sinning members. Listen to Jesus' call and His warning. He says, therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of My mouth. First of all, Jesus is calling upon them to repent of their sin, of tolerating those who were harboring false teaching and sin in their midst. The repentance is to repent of their tolerance. Evidently, it's not enough for most of the church members to abstain from these kinds of evils. They must make sure that no one else in the church is giving in to such evils, or even holding to teaching that such evils are acceptable. Jesus then gives them a twofold warning of what will happen if they don't repent of their tolerance. First, he says, or else I am coming to you quickly. This is a conditional promise. If you don't repent, I'm coming to you quickly. Repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. He's promising to respond soon if there is not repentance. And he's warning them that his response will be swift when it comes. If they do not repent of their sin of tolerating such members in their church. And so he gives this conditional promise. Repent, he says, or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice how Jesus changes the pronouns. He says, I am coming to you quickly, I'm coming to you quickly, you might want to underline that pronoun you, and I will make war against them. Underline that word them with the sword of my mouth. I think this is an important distinction. Jesus is coming to the church at Pergamum if there's not repentance, not So much to make war against the Christians, but to make war against those in the church who were holding to these spiritually fatal doctrines that were no doubt beginning to infect the church. If the Christians in Pergamum won't deal with the problem of heretics in their midst, Jesus will, and it won't be pretty. He promises that he will make war against them, speaking of the holders of these false teachings, those who are practicing immorality with abandon. And the instrument, he says, that he will make use of is the sword of my mouth, he says. Again, later in Revelation, we're going to see Jesus using the sword that comes out of his mouth as a weapon to slay the armies of the Antichrist that are arising against him at His second coming, so it's reasonable to assume that Jesus is talking about striking down or killing those who were holding false doctrines in the church at Pergamum. You say, man, what wrath. No, Christ loves. What we see here is love. Christ loves His church so much that He is willing to slay those who corrupt His church who mess with his church. Just like he did Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Just like he did with the members of the Corinthian church who were abusing the Lord's table, causing many of them to fall ill and some of them to die. And here he's promising to do the same. That's how much Jesus loves his church. You don't mess with his bride. He loves his church so much that he won't tolerate wolves among his people, and he does not want us to tolerate wolves among us either. Basically, Jesus' message to the Christians of Pergamum is this, if you continue to harbor in your midst those who hold the false teaching and these sinful practices, then I will come to you And I'll have to come to you because it will be among you that I'm going to find them. And I will make war against them. And trust me, you don't want to be anywhere close by. Anywhere close to these people when I make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a fifth act of Jesus designed to speak to this this church and motivate them to move away from their sinful tolerance and to be overcomers. Number five, He calls upon them to hear what the Spirit is saying through Him. He calls upon them to hear what the Spirit is saying through Him. Observe what He says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And using the language He uses here, Jesus is saying, A handful of things. He's saying that he wants the Christians in the church of Pergamum to hear everything that he has just said to them, every word. And he also wants the members of all the other churches of Asia Minor to be listening in and hearing what the Spirit is saying through Jesus to the church of Pergamum so that they too can learn to be careful about harboring false teaching and sin in their midst. And calling upon those who have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church, Jesus is also calling upon us to hear His words to the church of Pergamum, because the church of every age needs to hear what He is saying to this church, because we have much to gain from what He says to them. We here at Cornerstone must be careful to hold to sound doctrine, but we must do more than make sure that we individually, as members, hold to sound doctrine. We must look out for each other and make sure that our brothers and sisters are holding to sound doctrine. To do this, we must know what sound doctrine is so that we can then know what is not sound doctrine. And then we must be careful to root out any false teaching that is in our midst. As for how we behave, we must do more than merely abstain from immorality and repent whenever we're guilty of immorality. If someone in the church is engaging in immorality or any sin, for that matter, without repentance, we should be willing to approach that person Consistent with the teaching of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, and deal with that sin and that brother or sister. A little leaven can end up leavening the whole lump of dough, so unrepentant sin, unconfronted sin, and false teaching, guys, cannot be tolerated in the church. Yet it's amazing how many churches think they know better than Jesus. And they tolerate all sorts of false teaching and sin in their midst, all in the name of being loving. Seriously? So you're somehow more loving than Jesus? No, the loving thing to do is to hate sin and not tolerate it in our lives and in our midst. We all need to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the words of Jesus here. Jesus has called upon the church of Pergamum to repent And to deal with these heretics in their midst. And Jesus fully expects them, who are true believers, to obey his call. And he has a promise for those who do. And this brings us to the final act of Jesus' design to motivate this faithful but sinfully tolerant church to overcome. Number six, he promises profound blessing to the one who overcomes. He promises profound blessing to the one who overcomes. Listen to his promise. To him who overcomes, in verse 17, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. We have seen that the word "overcomes" means to triumph. This is the Greek word that the company Nike gets its name from. It means to be victorious, to triumph. It means to triumph over Satan. If you go to Revelation 12:11, you learn that you overcome Satan through the blood of the lamb, as it says in that verse, and through the word of God, and making the word of God your testimony. In other words, you overcome Satan by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for you at the cross. You overcome Satan by remaining faithful to Jesus in the face of persecution all the way to death. You overcome Satan by taking a stand against false teaching, by rejecting it in your own life, and by confronting sin in your own life and in the lives of others in the church. You overcome Satan by embracing church discipline and exercising, willing to be a part of church discipline on sinning members in the church and chasing off ravenous wolves that will from time to time creep in amongst us seeking to destroy the flock. True believers in Christ show the genuineness of their faith by doing these kinds of things. And to the one who is overcoming, present tense, to the one who is overcoming in these ways, Jesus promises that He will give him something. Look what He says, to him who overcomes, to him, I will give some of the hidden manna. You guys will recall that manna was the food that God miraculously provided for the children of Israel during their wanderings through the wilderness on their way from Egypt to the promised land. In Psalm 78 verse 24, the psalmist says, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. That's what manna is. It's food from heaven. It's heavenly food. And Jesus promises here to give to the one who is overcoming some of the hidden manna, some of this heavenly food. On one level, we could say this manna is Jesus. In John 6, Jesus speaks about the manna that God provided Israel from heaven, and then He tells everyone, basically, I'm the manna. I am the bread of life that has come down out of heaven, and if you eat of this bread and you keep coming to me and believing in me, you're never going to hunger or thirst for anything else again. So on one level, this manna is Jesus, but on another level, I think Jesus is also promising here that he will give the overcomer heavenly food to feast upon in glory. Heaven is a place of feasting. The kingdom of God, read through the Gospels, is a place of of feasting. Heaven will be a place of endless, literal feasting at the table, dining. Can I get an amen? Amen. Uh, There will be plenty of food there, perfect and wonderful food and delicious food, and Jesus is promising to give to the overcomer of this bountiful food, Think about why he would promise this. The church of Pergamum had people in their midst who believed it was okay to go to the filthy pagan temples and dine on the corrupted food that had been sacrificed to idols at these pagan filthy feasts. Jesus is promising the overcomer a better meal, better food. He promises to give them some of the hidden manna In other words, heavenly food that is not right now visible to our eyes, but it is real. It is even more real and more delicious and more wholesome than any literal food that someone could eat here on earth. How will the overcomer get access to this heavenly food to eat? Jesus says in verse 17, and I will give him a white stone. And we could spend a lot of time on this one. Commentators offer various compelling suggestions as to what this white stone represents, and we don't have time to walk through all of the options, but I would agree with commentators like Robert Thomas and Robert Mounts and Henry Alford and others who view this white stone as a token for admission to the heavenly feast. The white stone is the ticket to the heavenly feast. During the days of the Roman Empire, the government would sometimes give people a token that represented admission to some event or even food. This token often took the form of a white stone, historians say. Dr. Thomas says in his commentary on this point, such a stone with one's name on it was the basis for admission to special events. It was also a well-established custom to reward victors at the games with such a token enabling them to gain admission to a special feast that was to come. So given Jesus' promise of heavenly food, of the hidden manna in this verse, I think this interpretation fits beautifully with Jesus' flow of thought. According to many passages in the New Testament, there will be great feasting in the kingdom of God when it comes in its glory. We also know from Revelation there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb that is still to come. And it seems here that Jesus is promising to give the overcomer a white stone which will represent his right to come into the heavenly banquet feast and to eat of God's heavenly food. Perhaps that white stone will be our ticket to any heavenly feast we ever want to be a part of for all of eternity. And we'll be carrying that white stone around everywhere we go as a special gift from Jesus to us. Here in verse 17, Jesus also promises, this is even more personal, to give the overcomer a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So it's not, hey, just grab a stone out of this bucket and as long as it's white, you can get into the heavenly feast. No, this is a very personalized stone. When the overcomer gets to heaven, he will receive A new name from Jesus. Think about that. I don't know about you, whether you like your name or not. I know when I was a kid, I did not like my name. My parents even uh, researched changing my name because I got teased for being named Milton as a kid, and they decided not to change my name because it was too costly uh, to do that. I don't mind my name now, but as a kid, I didn't like it Trust me, when you receive your new name from Jesus that represents the new you, you're going to love whatever the name is that Jesus gives you. And Jesus says, it's a name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. When the overcomer gets to heaven, he's going to receive a new name from Jesus that right now is only known to Jesus. It's His secret, and when He gives it to you, it will only be known by you and Him. This means that this name is profoundly personal. It's intimate information between you and Jesus, just like we all have passwords that are known only to us and whatever the company is that we use that password with, so Jesus will give to each of us a new name written on the white stone that no one else will know except each of us and Christ. This stone will be our special token, which validates our right to eat at any kingdom feast and at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what's written on that stone, that's going to be a secret between me and Jesus just something between us for all of eternity. If you are here today and you want the right to feast in the kingdom of God, in the wholesome banquets, in the kingdom of God, and if you want to receive from Jesus a personally engraved invitation from Him to feast together with Him forever in heaven, then repent of your sins And come to Jesus and believe in Him today. Call upon His name. Trust in Him to atone for your sins through His blood that was shed for you at the cross. And then these blessings will be yours and you will receive from Jesus a new name one day that represents the new you. Not the old Imagine getting to heaven and Jesus gives us a name and it's like he named us based on the worst things we ever did on earth. It's like, oh, I deserve that. No, it'll be a new name that represents the new you if you come to Jesus with your broken self and believe in him and call upon his name as your Lord and Savior. And you won't even have to wait for heaven to begin feasting on the heavenly manna. You can be feasting on Christ beginning today and Jesus says if you keep coming to me and keep believing in me John six you'll never hunger or thirst for anything else again because I will satisfy you there's a lot to think about with regard to this passage some of the things we've thought about as we've gone along this morning let me make just uh, three quick points Our passage today teaches us to be discerning, does it not? That we should not just accept someone's beliefs and actions as okay simply because they call themselves a Christian, just because they're a member of a church or this church. We should not accept people's counsel. We should not accept people's counsel as being godly and true just because they say That they are Christians. If someone calls themselves a Christian, and even if they are a member of this church and they're embracing false teaching or they are engaging in sin, we need to be willing to follow Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17 and confront them privately about their wrong beliefs and about their sinful practices, if they refuse to repent, we return to them with two or three others. If they refuse still to repent, we tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then they are excommunicated from the church and viewed as non-believers in the hopes that perhaps still they might repent. The church of Pergamum was not practicing church discipline on its sinning members And Jesus is calling them out for this. And believe it or not, he does this because he loves them and he loves us. That's why he gives us Matthew 18. I personally would never want to be a part of a local church that does not practice Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. I want to be a part of a church composed of people that are willing to confront me and go all the way to excommunicating me if I'm involved in sin and refuse to repent. I feel safe in a church like that. Jesus is a loving Savior. He's so loving that He won't tolerate sin. We think of intolerance as unloving. (laughs) Jesus is so loving that He will not tolerate sin in our lives and in the churches. He loves his church so much that he's willing to confront his church like he is here and to call them out for their sin of tolerance so that we can hear his words and make things right. And if we are loving Christians who really want to be like Jesus, then we must be willing to confront sin as well. Sin is the great enemy of us all, It's the cancer that operates in every life. It kills and destroys. And so a loving Christian is someone who is willing to do the hard work of reproving and confronting others and who invites others to reprove and confront him as well. And finally, you may find it hard to imagine a first century church a church that is faithful on some levels, tolerating people in their midst who thought immorality was okay. And we're like, man, that's just hard to imagine that going on. But honestly, it shouldn't be hard to imagine, unfortunately. There are people nowadays in the church who claim to be Christians who say that premarital sex is no big deal. It's okay if you love each other. There are people nowadays, even in the church, who claim to be Christians who say that homosexual behavior is okay. In fact, it's a good and beautiful thing, and you dare not say otherwise, or you're a hater. There are people in the church who claim to be Christians, claiming the name of Christ, who say that it's perfectly acceptable for a man to say that he is a woman, and to dress as such. There are pastors of churches across our land who claim the name of Christ, who officiate with great joy over homosexual marriage ceremonies. There are people who claim the name of Christ, members of churches, who without any affliction of conscience entertain themselves with movies and videos put together by ungodly people which feature nudity and sex acts among the actors. There are people, even in the church, who claim the name of Christ. Members of churches who, who don't need to go to the temple to get a prostitute. Their prostitutes are online pornographic images that they look upon to feed their lust, and they think that doing such a thing every once in a while is not that big of a deal. After all, almost everyone does this. So we should not look at the church of Pergamum and shake our heads and wonder how they could have gotten so out of line. Some of you sitting here are way out of line. You know what you've done this past week, and you need to repent. The same thing happens today in churches across our land, even here at Cornerstone. And we must make sure, guys, that we are haters of sin who refuse to tolerate sin in ourselves, and that we love our brothers and sisters so much that. We're gonna go confront them out of love to help them pull away from their sin too. Why should we do this? Well, because the one with the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one says so. Because the one who is willing to hang on a cross and be pierced with nails and thorns and a spear says so. And that should be enough for us. Let him who has ears to hear hear what the Spirit is saying this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray pray that you would give to me and to all of us here a Cornerstone, a spirit of humble repentance, a love for you that is hotter than fire, which then produces in us a corresponding hatred of sin that is just as passionate as is our love for you. Thank you for loving us so much that you write letters like this that you invite us to listen to and learn from. You are a Savior full of mercy towards those who admit their sin and come to you in brokenness and repentance. And you are also a Savior who is holy and who judges unrepentant sin. Make us a holy church full of holy people And when we fall short, Lord, give us the boldness to lay claim to the grace that is only found in you. You are the only Lord who will never let us down and the only Lord who always stands ready to forgive us whenever we let you down. And it is your grace that we cling to today. And may your grace not cause us to be casual in our sin or comfortable in our sin, may your grace melt our hearts into deeper layers of loving obedience to you and serve as the wind beneath our wings as we seek to soar to greater heights of love and righteousness. We ask all of these things, Lord, in your holy name and all God's people said.